0: devotion to sports fandom has really been growing rather significantly. More and more individuals are really transferring their loyalties and their devotion from the sanctuary to the stadium.
1: I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers.
2: He's the boss. And we're married.
1: And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture.
2: What could possibly go wrong?
1: Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are going to catch up, and I've got a little surprise at the beginning. And then later on, we're going to sit down with Dr. Randall Balmer, who is a professor at... Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire, he's got a brand new book out entitled Passion Plays, How Religion Shapes Sports in North America. It is a wonderful conversation that we have with him, so you want to stay tuned. And then after the interview, Missy and I are going to talk about the interview and have a little wisdom, hopefully, to share with you. So stay tuned. It's going to be a good pod. See, it is so good to see you. How are things in your life?
2: Well, just living the dream, man. Just, just living, living the dream. dream. <laughs> it is, um, what time? Oh, I don't know. It's dark outside in the night, and I'm still in my pajamas <laughs> from this morning, so, you know... <laughs>
1: Well, I'm just glad we don't have a dress code here at Good Faith Media.
2: Well, if my boss would give me time to shower during the day.
1: Better. Uh, you got work to do. You got work to do. That's right. so, That's
2: right. Well, you know,
1: last week we got a lot of great feedback from the audience uh, about the quiz that you gave me concerning the Supreme Court. We did. Have you ever heard of the saying that turnabout is fair play?
2: No. Or in this
1: instance, <laughs> a dish served is served. I don't, yeah, what is, what is that saying there, <laughs> I just pulled a, a President Clearly. Bush there. <laughs> <Really>. <laughs> Fool me once. Shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on, Shame on. <laughs>
2: Please
1: clap, as <laughs> his brother said. Please clap. Please clap. Please clap. <laughs> no, I got a little quiz for you. We had uh, Randall Ballmer on this week. I uh, had a great conversation with him about his new book, Passion Plays, uh, about sports and faith in North America. So um, I prepared a little quiz for you to begin this episode. <laughs> uh, it is entitled...
2: wait, wait, wait. wait. How many lifelines do I have?
1: <laughs> oh, you're going to make phone calls. I've got
2: some phone of friends,
1: right? Uh, oh, yeah, right? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Okay. Well, this quiz is entitled, Missy's Quiz Over Sports Balls. Because
2: <laughs> <laughs> do you really want to go there with me on the public podcast?
1: <laughs> <laughs> because that's what you say. I'm not a fan of sports balls. <laughs> so, well. <laughs> uh, okay. So here's question number one. What sport is described as the beautiful game?
2: I think it's hockey.
1: Seriously, soccer,
2: soccer, soccer, no, <laughs> oh my soccer, gosh. soccer.
1: Your son played this for same years. Concept. Soccer. <laughs> yeah, same concept, <laughs> different pitches. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Question number two: How many regulation strokes are there in swimming? How many regulation strokes are there in swimming?
2: Oh, you mean like butterfly versus backstroke yes, yes. versus I don't know, four?
1: You got oh, it.
2: Really? Ding 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 ding.
1: Awesome. Yeah, uh, the bonus points for naming them.
2: That's right. I named two or three. What? Yep. Uh, butterfly, Backstro- backstroke, um, uh Regular stroke.
1: (laughs) Oh, the old thousand meter regular stroke. (laughs) Would you win that gold medal in? (laughs) That would be called freestyle. Freestyle. And the breaststroke. So those are the four. How
2: could I forget breaststroke? I don't know.
1: Yeah, I'm going to leave that one alone. (laughs) Number three, how long is the total distance in a marathon?
2: Oh, I know you ran this. I did. It's like, um i got uh, 21 22 miles oh you shit. got the
1: two gone. right 26.2 miles um, or 42.16 kilometers
2: okay sorry i should have <laughs> known that i ordered you the bumper sticker <laughs> yeah you <and> did
1: <laughs> number four how many nba championships did michael jordan win with the chicago oh. bulls
2: all I know about Michael Jordan is he was cut from his like high school freshman <laughs> team. That is my only fun fact about Michael Jordan. So
1: that sounds I don't know. like a, that sounds like a pastoral illustration. Yes, of <laughs> course. <laughs> it's the number six. He won six championships with the Chicago Bulls. All right, this and This one should be easy. How many players are there on a baseball team? Seriously? Yeah.
2: How many players, or how many people on the, on field. the field? On the field. Okay, hang on, audience. I got to. Like, okay, wait, the offense or the defense? Defense. Defense. So, catcher, first base, second base, third base, shortstop. I almost said fourth base. (laughs) (laughs) Oh,
1: like three offense. The Hall of Famer. I think there's
2: nine. Eight or nine.
1: Nine. 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 So, I'll give you half credit. That was pretty good. Okay. All right. Number six. Which is the only American football team to go a whole season undefeated, including the Super Bowl?
2: I'm going to have to say Dallas Cowboys just because let's all take a moment. Oh, okay.
1: hey, your Texas is showing. Right. Is it
2: the big hair. Yeah, that's right. But that's actually bedhead from last night. So.
1: The 1972 Miami Dolphins went undefeated that entire season, winning the Super Bowl. Number seven, which NFL team appeared in four consecutive Super Bowls from 1991 to 1994 and lost them all? Including a few to your Dallas Cowboys.
2: Oh crap! I <laughs> do know this answer. It's is it the Buffalo Bills? Yeah, ah, ding ding oh ding my ding! Gosh, ding you they got it, Yeah, okay. well played, well played.
1: All right, uh, switching sports. Back to baseball. What is the curse of the Bambino?
2: That he never won a World Series, Super Bowl.
1: First of all, who is the Bambino?
2: Is it Babe Ruth? Yes. Okay, I know that because of Sandlot.
1: Okay, so what is the curse of the Bambino?
2: That he didn't win? No. No? Okay, then I don't know.
1: It is a superstition. That a dog stole his baseball. (laughs) (laughs) No, it is a superstition that uh, was derived in Major League Baseball for the 86-year championship drought of the Boston Red Sox between 1918 and 2004. The reason? They traded Babe Ruth. From Boston to New York. Well,
2: I mean, that checks out.
1: That does check out. When you
2: trade Babe Ruth? I don't... That they I, finally
1: won a World Series and broke the curse. So
2: And they won like two while yeah. our kid was in college uh, yeah. living right on the Boston Commons. Like yeah. looked out of his dorm room and got to see the parade and all that. It was so unfair. Yeah,
1: it was crazy. Uh, he got to see a lot of cool things. Number nine. This one's a hard one. How far is the distance between home plate and the pitching rubber in baseball? <laughs> And you get an extra credit point if you tell me why.
2: How long between third base and home? No
1: home plate Wait. and the pitching rubber.
2: Home <laughs> you gotta quit with that.
1: <laughs> the home plate and the pitching rubber. Round. Okay. <laughs> See, I had mound, but that is incorrect. The more accurate term is pitching. Is rubber. our
2: audience ready for our story about our neighbor?
1: <laughs> I don't know. That's a good one. <laughs> Let's maybe save that for the end of the show. Okay. 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 So, what's you the difference? Audience,
2: you have to stick around. If you stick around, you get a bonus story <laughs> about rubbers. Uh, okay. So, how far is it from the pitching mound mm-hmm. to home plate? I have no idea.
1: It is sixty point six inches. And the reason it is sixty point six inches?
2: No, it's not inches. Yes, it is. No, it's not inches. Sixty point inches is like how tall I am. Yes, somebody has a from home plate to the pitching mound. Oh no,
1: sixty point six feet. Sorry, (laughs) sixty point sixty feet six inches is okay. Okay, so so tell me why. Sorry about that. Um, The reason is when Abner Doubleday came up with the rules of baseball. He hand wrote the rules and gave them to his secretary. She had a hard time reading his handwriting. Relatable. Because (laughs) he put down 60.0 and she mistook his 0. .0 for a six. And so it's forever been 60 feet, six inches
2: That's funny. We had a similar uh, situation a couple weeks ago in New York when you thought you tipped um, the waiter (laughs) six hundred dollars.
1: It's like, oh, hang on. (laughs) Folks, it
2: pays to write neatly.
1: (laughs) Neatly, that's exactly right. All right, and here is the last question before we uh, pitch it to the interview. Who's your favorite second baseman to ever play the game of baseball?
2: It must be you. Ah, you No, second baseman. (laughs) Well, our
1: media producer, Cliff Vaughn, gave that question to me and I told him she's not going to (laughs) know. I
2: mean, (laughs) it was a a good stab in the dark, right? Well, uh, because your jersey is retired at your high school. Should we tell the audience that? No,
1: we don't need to talk about that. We have
2: a framed jersey. You're forever memorialized at... What was your high
1: school? Union, uh, Tulsa Union, yes.
2: Tulsa mm-hmm. Union High School.
1: Yeah, well, Well, that was fun. That was I thought fun. you did a pretty good job.
2: Okay, but now I've got tired head. You got to give me a break. So. Uh, all
1: right. Well, let's uh, go talk to uh, Dr. Balmer, and then we'll be r- back right after the interview.
2: Sounds great. All
1: right, stay tuned.
2: Hey, listeners. Check us out online at goodfaithmedia.org and follow us on social at gfmedia.org. We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. I'm new here and could really use the feedback, but only if it's glowing. Thanks for listening.
1: Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very, very special guest all the way from Hanover, New Hampshire. A prize-winning historian and Emmy Award nominee, Dr. Randall Balmer holds the John Phillips Chair in Religion at Dartmouth College, the oldest endowed professorship at Dartmouth. He earned a PhD from Princeton University in 1985 and taught as Professor of American Religious History at Columbia University for 27 years before coming to Dartmouth in 2012. He has been a visiting professor at Princeton, Yale, Northwestern and Emory Universities and in the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. He was also a visiting professor at Yale Divinity School from 2004 to 2008. Dr. Barmer has been published widely in both scholarly journals and in popular press. He is regularly asked to comment on religion in American life and he has appeared frequently on network television, NPR, and both the Colbert Report and the Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Dr. Barmer has published more than a dozen books he His latest is entitled Passion Plays, How Religion Shapes Sports in North America, and it is in bookstores now. So, Dr. Balmer, thank you for being with us, and welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Congratulations on the book. Uh, it's, uh, we've worked through it the last couple of weeks. It's outstanding. Uh, you know, it's a little different from uh, your other materials uh, that you've written, but uh, we really, really thoroughly enjoyed it because, you know, coming from a sports background myself, uh, I, just, I just loved it. So, Dr. Balmer, why did you decide to write about uh, the relationship between faith and sports? <laughs> well, the
0: deep background for the book really was my graduate school years at uh, at Princeton in the early 1980s. And my mentor in the history department, John Murren, was uh, a huge sports fan. And he would very often talk about the symbolic world surrounding all of the team sports in North America. He didn't talk about hockey because he wasn't a hockey fan, but otherwise the other three major sports. And I just was uh, fascinated by what he had to say about that, talking about baseball as an immigrant game and so forth. And so I've been kind of thinking about his ideas for the last 40 years and decided to try to uh, write something about this because uh, John, unfortunately never did, although I would have gladly deferred to him in writing a book about Sports in in North America. Uh, tragically, he he died of COVID a couple of years ago, so he didn't get a chance to see this book. But uh, the the more immediate catalyst was uh, when I was teaching in New York City in the early nineteen nineties. I was introduced to sports radio, and uh, I was just fascinated by it. Uh, the 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 challenge that hosts would uh, face uh, sustaining a conversation and a debate over hours and hours and hours over whether or not the Mets manager should have uh, lifted the starting pitcher with two outs in the bottom of the sixth inning and things like that. And I just got uh, entranced by that and, frankly, addicted to it. And uh, so this book is really uh, the consequence of reflecting on sports in North America for a very long time.
2: Well, Dr. Ballmer, I have um, been... Made to promise a mutual friend of ours that I would open my first question with long-time first time. (laughs) So, long-time first time, (laughs) I'll ask. In the book, you talk about the rise of sports in association with faith in the early 20th century. You refer to the rise as muscular Christianity. Can you expand on that a little bit for our listeners and talk about how it still continues to affect our culture today?
0: First, we should probably explain that the uh, first time, long time is a kind of ritual incantation, at least in the early years of sports radio. And it stood for first time caller, long time listener. And so that would often be the sort of introduction for somebody calling in t- for the first time before the, he offered his uh, views on whatever whatever the crucial issue at hand might have been at that particular moment. (laughs) Uh. Muscular Christianity is a fascinating development in 19th century uh, Christianity, really in the English-speaking world. It began in Britain, actually, out of concern, first of all, that women were, in effect, taking charge of the churches in terms of their numbers and their participation, their volunteer labor and so forth and part of that was due to the to the industrial revolution that is men were no longer working from home no longer farming in a subsistence way and so they were working instead at the, the in the factories or in sedentary office jobs and what a lot of people were noticing especially in britain at the time is that men were not getting enough exercise not getting enough fresh air, air. and so a group of protestant leaders um, not any particular group, but just sort of a, a loose coalition of Protestant leaders said, decided to promote the faith by promoting athleticism as well. And as I'm sure you know, this draws on uh, very common New Testament metaphors, particularly in, in the writings of St. Paul, where Paul talks about putting on the full armor of God, running the race, finishing the course, uh, um, uh, contending for the prize in that sort of language. And so muscular Christianity really adopted those two metaphors of militarism and athleticism. Probably the best example of that, uh, certainly for militarism, would be the Salvation Army, which, of course, began in Britain but also the Young Men's Christian Association, or the YMCA. But there are other organizational examples as well. Uh, For example, you've got the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. For Catholics, you have Knights of Columbus, but also the CYO, the Catholic Youth Organization, that organized boxing tournaments and basketball games for Catholic youth. And then even among Jews, the Young Men's Hebrew Association, which, of course, was a, a... an attempt to replicate the success of the YMCA. And in American society, the most recent uh, best known example of muscular Christianity would be the Promise Keepers movement of the 1990s. And it's important to remember that the Promise Keepers really was organized or devised by the football coach at the University of Colorado. And these gatherings of men took place inside sports stadiums. So, you know, this is muscular Christianity. You can't get much better example (laughs) of muscular Christianity than, than promise keepers.
1: Yeah. You know, when we were reading or, you know, when we were working through that Portion of the book and the definition of muscular Christianity and the examples that you just gave, I you know I'm a kid of the '80s and '90s and I remember the Power Team. I don't know if oh, you recall. <laughs> all about that. Yeah, right. I don't know if yes. you, you remember the Power Team, but they would come they would come to schools and churches and you know rip phone books out and stuff like that, and you know they were using the power of God to do all these things.
0: And that's right, yeah. This is not the crowd you want to invite for dinner, however. No, I
2: totally <laughs> forgotten about that. But, yes, my youth group did go to a power team yeah. a conference or two. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh,
1: well, um, in the introduction, you write these words. And this is... This really spoke to me again as a, a former athlete. You write, Although I'm intrigued by the parallels between religion and sports, stadiums, as sacred space, game day rituals, and liturgy, and so on, I want to argue that Americans have a deeper visceral connection with sports in terms of both its popularity and the devotion of its adherents. That deeper connection, Dr. Balmer, I, I mean, it, it really astounds me how connected we are as a society and individually to the idea and practice of sport. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that deeper connection that uh, you're referring to? Sure I I, I think
0: you know I'm, I'm not much of a numbers person in terms of statistics or polls or so forth, but you know the the, the numbers I've consulted show that at least over the last several decades, devotion, to sports, uh, sports fandom, to put it in in a in, in kind of a term, uh, has really been growing rather significantly. At the same time that, as you know, religious adherence has been dropping over the last several decades, and it seems to me there's a connection between the two. I think more and more individuals, particularly men, we can talk about that in a moment, are really transferring their loyalties and their devotion from the sanctuary to the stadium. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I think kind of looking uh, and and reasons beyond the very important reasons that I think sports have real religious connections in in their roots. And uh, we can talk about that as well if you'd like. But part of it is that I think particularly among the demographic of white males, there's been a sense, a growing sense over the last several decades that the larger world is unfair that somehow the forces in society are sort of arrayed against them now i want to emphasize this is perception (laughs) i don't think it's reality but it's perception and i think you know to be honest and not to not to become political here but this is the the sentiment that has really driven the the trump voters in many ways feeling as though that other people have some sort of privileged status in society, whether by uh, virtue of color, or or gender, or uh, disability, or whatever it might be, that other, other segments of the society are being preferred in one way or another, and that they are being disadvantaged. Now, again, I'm gonna emphasize a second time, this is perception sure. on the part of this demographic. I don't think it's reality, but that's perception. And I think one of the reasons that sports is so attractive for this demographic in particular is that sports offers an alternate orderly universe. Hmm. And I say, I think you see that in all sorts of ways. Right. First of all, the playing fields or the courts uh, are defined overwhelmingly by right angles. And something is either fair or foul. It's either inbounds or it's out of bounds. You're either safe or you're out. And I think there is a, a clarity, a kind of moral clarity to the world of sports that this demographic of white males thinks is missing in the larger societies. That is also to say, another example would be the the competition itself. I think sports offers probably the closest thing in our ha- in our society to a perfect meritocracy that is to say at least at the higher levels the collegiate and the professional professional levels you're not going to play unless you are talented unless you're you're gifted now i want to acknowledge that all sorts of factors play into whether or not you have access to the playing field uh, Socioeconomic standing race color gender all those things play into it i understand that But again, I think sports offers the closest thing we have to the proverbial level playing field where people compete on an equal footing. And I think that's part of the attraction that white males have to the world of sports. And it may explain why they have moved their real devotion, their real passion, their real energy away from the world of religion, into the world of organized sports. Mm,
1: Yeah, makes sense.
2: So in the book, you talk about the four primary or big four sports in America, football, baseball, hockey, and basketball, and go through the history of those and how um, they've each um, dealt with integration and other um, social issues. I am a sports adjacent fan in that <laughs> I love the food, I love the fun of being part of it, but I'm not a I'm not someone who could tell you who won the World Series of football, right? That's how <laughs> the, I the World yeah, Series in 1989 of or whatever. <laughs> but I, think, I did. I learn think you just
0: made your point.
1: Exactly.
2: Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I learned so much and was um, really found the book fascinating. Enjoyed it very much. Um, but what as you were researching as someone who who maybe was already a sports fan. Like what was the most surprising discovery that you made during your research?
0: Well, there are a lot of things. First of all, as you know, I kind of uh, take on the mythology surrounding the origins of baseball. And that I think is fascinating in all sorts of ways. And I think it speaks to the power of myth. That is, we want to hold on to the so-called Cooperstown myth uh, because the real origins of baseball are rather more prosaic than the Cooperstown myth. So I think that's one thing. But also for me, I think the, the whole challenge of racial integration as it played out in different sports was fascinating for me to watch. And particularly in football, there's some very, very sad stories about football players who tried to integrate both college and professional professional football. Uh, One example, for example, is um, uh, Greg Page, who arguably desegregated the Southeast Conference, the SEC conference in football, college football. And uh, he was a recruit for the uh, University of Kentucky. He arrived on campus, uh, one of the initial practices, his teammate, teammates piled on him. He was paralyzed, and he died, tragically, 38 days later. Uh, another instance is uh, Johnny Bright, who was a Heisman Trophy uh, Favorite going into the 1951 uh, college football season, uh, quarterback for the Drake University Bulldogs out of uh, Des Moines, Iowa, African-American, uh, an extraordinary athlete. He goes down and plays a game at uh, Oklahoma State at that time it was called Oklahoma A&M in Stillwater, Oklahoma, and uh, it's, it's very clear. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of evidence that the Oklahoma team, particularly a, a defensive lineman, uh, ganged up on him and broke his jaw, disqualified him from the game. And for that reason, he did not win the Heisman Trophy that, that year. So there are all sorts of stories that uh, really were quite compelling, quite poignant about the challenge of integrating these various uh, leagues. On the other hand, I think there are some uh, remarkable stories that are rather more positive. Uh, Jackie Robinson, of course, broke the collar barrier in Major League Baseball on April on April 15th, 1947. Far too late, it should have happened decades earlier, but nevertheless, that was a sort of harbinger for social change in the larger society. Uh, more than a year later, Harry Truman by executive order, desegregated the U.S. Armed Forces. So here's an example where football, sports, provides a sort of uh, uh, vanguard for social change in the larger society. So those were some of the things that uh, struck me as I was writing the book. Mm.
1: And speaking of social change, because this is, I mean, it's so germane for us today, but throughout history, there has been this relationship, and you pointed out uh, just so well, In the book, this relationship of uh, sports paralleling what's going on in society, and at times, athletes uh, and organizations. Uh, standing up and ma- making a stance uh, on a particular issue. You know, we've seen it uh, in the 70s in the Olympics uh, with uh, looking for, you know, addressing race. We've seen it uh, multiple times, uh, more recently with uh, Colin Kaepernick taking a knee during the national anthem. Um You know, and with Black Lives Matter movement uh, over the last couple of years, and even more recently, uh, the the women's national soccer team uh, fighting for equal pay, Uh, and it was it's it's just it's a really amazing parallel to me. So, what do you think? I mean, do you think these athletes understand? Or are starting to understand the power that they wield in society and the influence they can have uh, to incorporate social change.
0: I think they are, and Colin Kaepernick, of course, is a is a wonderful example of that. Uh, although it's a sad case too because uh, he has not played since 2017 right. even though if you look uh, and I'm you know I'm not a huge football well I am a football fan I'm not you know one of these passionate or diehard fans but if you look through the rosters of the NFL and look at backup quarterbacks and compare them to Colin Kaepernick uh, he 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 comes he comes out pretty well and uh, he should be having a job You should have a Place to play in the NFL, it seems to me. But you know, that's that's uh, that's another matter in many ways. But yes, I think athletes are beginning to understand their place as a sort of engine for social change. Uh, people like uh, LeBron James, uh, certainly, as you mentioned, the uh, women's soccer team, the women's uh, basketball team, the WNBA team, the Atlanta Dream, uh, last year uh, standing up for civil rights uh, in in at a time in a a way that really could have uh, been very costly to them in many ways. Uh, One of the things that was striking to me in the course of writing the book, and in many ways, this is an answer to the previous question as well, was the ways in which social change now, I think comes from the world of sports, sadly more than from the realm of religion Mm. in terms of a sort of prophetic voice. We used to look to such people as Walter Rauschenbusch, for example, associated with the social gospel movement, Abraham Joshua Heschel within Judaism, uh, Thomas Merton, Dorothy Day, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Reinhold Niebuhr. These used to be the voices of prophecy in our society, by which I mean calling us to social justice uh, as, as as a society. And those voices, I think, have... Religious voices have been muted in recent years. I think there's all sorts of reasons we can talk about why that is the case. But more and more, I think we're looking to athletes Mm -hmm. as people who are speaking up for issues of social justice. Again, Colin Kaepernick uh, as. Good example. Uh, Some of these other examples we mentioned as well. And I think that says something rather sad, frankly, about the state of religion Mm -hmm. in our society today. But given the popularity of athletics as opposed to religion, maybe it's not all that surprising.
2: It's funny. We just had the same conversation before we began recording with you, Mitch and I did, about what you're talking about, the athletes are able to stand up and speak and that, you know, they've been given this, this platform. And I think it's, it's very brave. Like, and you mentioned the case with Colin Kaepernick, um, what he ended up giving up. Um, I just think it's a sad statement on our churches and, yeah. and, and, on our, um, clergy that, that, you know we clearly are not t- talking about the right things and so people are and are what's even
1: more disturbing about it missy and dr baumer is that a lot of times when these athletes speak up on a social issue such as uh, black lives matter or lgbtq rights a lot of times the church is one of the first ones to condemn them yes yeah and, and that's just sad. such a sad commentary
0: it it really is, and uh, you know, the, one of the one of the episodes I cite in in the book is uh, Laura Ingram, this Fox News uh, personality, mm-hmm. who was talking about LeBron James and Kevin Durant, uh, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. and the the stand that they had taken in on behalf of of racial justice, and her dismissive comment was "Shut up and dribble." Yeah. And I I think this happens all too frequently, frankly, as you pointed out with religious leaders as well, dismissing athletes as as not being qualified to speak about moral um, concerns. And uh, you also have within the world of sports and sports fandom, this odd situation where an overwhelmingly white audience is cheering for athletes of color, Mm -hmm. and yet if those athletes try to step out of that category, that is uh, figuratively as well as literally step off of the field, then all of a sudden you know, they are pilloried as uh, being inappropriate or they need to stay in their lane and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's really one of the great kind of cruel paradoxes about uh, sports fandom to, today is that uh, if athletes try to, speak on larger matters they tend to be dismissed as 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 being unqualified you know the shut up and dribble comment i think is pretty telling it was very
2: cringy as i and i listened to the book um and and when you quoted those words it just made me wince it's just kind of gross
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah, indeed. So, uh, well, we've got yeah. a couple more questions for you. Uh, I've got one that's actually off script, and then I'm going to uh, pitch it to Missy for our final question that we ask every guest. But as we were talking about masculine Christianity and and the influence that sports has, in your research on the book, did you, did you find any studies on the kind of the militarization of sports recently, because it seems as though, especially professional sports, um, has really been pushing, uh, armed forces, uh, even changing their uniforms at times, uh, to, to have camouflage. Mm -hmm. Um, do you see some problems with that or you okay with it? Well, I you know I, I'm I'm not a
0: huge fan of militarism yeah. in society. Although I certainly acknowledge the necessity sure. for uh, for defense and so forth, I understand that. But yeah, th- there is kind of a a cult of mil- militarism in our society that I think is is uh, goes back a long way, and it's I think in many ways regionally specific, mm. particularly the south. One of the reasons that football, which let's understand is a military game because it has to do with the conquest and the defense of territory. One of the reasons that football is so popular in the South, I think, is because military culture in many ways defines the South. Now, football is popular elsewhere. And I understand that. And I want to acknowledge that. And I think the the military overtones to football and particularly the violence that is associated with football is a big part of its appeal, and I think that's uh, that's unfortunate in many ways. But you think about football and the connections with militarism, even the names of some of the stadiums out in Los Angeles, the Los Angeles Coliseum. Mm-hmm. Now, they don't, professional football doesn't isn't played there any longer, but it was for a long time, uh, and that of course invokes uh, the ancient gladiatorial struggles of ancient Rome. War Memorial uh, Stadium in Little Rock, Arkansas, or Buffalo, New York, Soldier Field in Chicago. <laughs> yeah, uh, you have uh, Memorial Stadiums everywhere, right. uh, and most of them are have a reference to uh, military combat or veterans in in one way or another. And as you pointed out, uh, the use of camouflage uh, uniforms or caps or uh, or um, other sorts of uh, accessories and even you know the the national anthem mm-hmm. and the uh, m- uh, the military jets screaming past after the national anthem uh, right. uh, for special games and things like that uh, it's all very much militarism in college football the, the halftime the the uh, marching band is a uh, an echo of military bands yeah
1: Well, Dr. Balmer, it has been a pleasure. It always is great to talk to you. I always learn something. The new book, Passion Place, How Religion Shapes Sports in North America, is in bookstores now. So as soon as you hit pause on this uh, podcast and episode, make sure you go buy Dr. Balmer's book. But Dr. Balmer, before we let you go, we've got one question that Missy asked all of our our guests. So I'm going to hand it over to her.
2: Dr. Ballmer, thank you so much for speaking with us today. I very much enjoyed the book, um, but as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is, there's more to tell. In light of your work and our conversation today, what is your more to tell?
0: Well, thanks, Missy, and Mitch as well for this interview. I appreciate the, the chance to have a conversation. It's always a pleasure. Uh, more to tell. I think if I had to offer a uh, a, a, a crumb of wisdom, <laughs> and that crumb of wisdom would be keep the faith. I think there's a lot of reasons to be discouraged today, especially for people of faith. Uh, if you look at uh, what we've been, just been talking about, uh, religious adherence in, in our society is certainly going down. And there's reasons to be discouraged. Uh, other developments in the society don't look a whole lot more promising. But I think it's important to keep the faith. One of the things that is striking to me, I was asked a few years ago to do a, um, an essay on the theological virtue of hope. And it struck me that of the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, which of course are at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, the virtue of hope is the one we speak about probably less frequently than the others. We talk about a lot about love. Uh, particularly in you know connection with with weddings and that sort of thing. And we talk about faith a good bit. But hope is the one virtue it appears it seems to me that is almost entirely volitional. That is, we choose to be hopeful. we can choose to be hopeful. And I think in an era when hope is in short supply, <laughs> it's important to be hopeful. I often say that anyone who is a parent does not have the luxury of despair. So I think hope is essential, and that is one way that we keep
1: the faith. Keep the faith, I love it. Uh,
2: Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Balmer.
1: My pleasure. And we'll be right back. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and wow, Missy, what a conversation we just had with Dr. Balmer.
2: We did. I I feel I always feel so um, I don't know non-professorial <laughs> in the presence <laughs> of these brilliant professors well, and authors. That well, we you're so articulate. To. I don't know why. That's right. <laughs> It was wonderful. He was
1: wonderful. You know, the book you and I both uh, read. The book uh, you listened to it. Uh, I, I read through it, and uh, when he starts talking about sports, especially the stadiums and the field as being sacred place, man, I could relate to that because you know, yes, it is a, a wh- kind of a horrible thing that we're seeing sports stadiums really kind of replace church man, I get that sacredness about a field. I mean, I can still, in the spring, smell, I get the smell of cut grass and pine tar, and it takes me back to those days playing baseball. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just being there with your teammates and your fans and even, you know, the other team, there was just a lot of, he called it liturgy, and there just was. I mean, there was sayings and inside information and, you know, there's the, just a beautiful experience. So I really, I, I really uh, appreciated that description of that sacred space.
2: So I pulled a couple of quotes from the introduction that I think kind of a, um, apply here, because I feel like, excuse me, like I said, I'm a sports fan in as much as I love the excitement of sure. it. I love the food. I love the camaraderie. I love the getting together. Um you know that, And I'll watch, and I understand to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found a couple of things that he said pretty poignant, and he says in the introduction, team sports in North America appeals disproportionately to men, especially white men who find... In sports, an alternative orderly universe, very much in contrast to their perceptions of an unfair, chaotic world all around them. For them, sports supplies a kind of refuge, not unlike the one that their faith once provided. And I, in thinking of that, and I don't want to say you can't. It's it's either or. It's not. Sure. Like I mean, sports ball is super fun. Love it. (laughs) Um, but I feel like as. As people, we are just prone to want to classify. We want to have a winner and a loser. Mm-hmm. We want to have these clearly defined lines. And we tried that for a long time in religion. Mm-hmm. You're in, you're out. You're following the rules or you're not. You're obeying the tenets or you're not. And I don't feel like that's what Jesus intended. Mm-hmm. And that's not what God intended. I mean, he didn't even want to have a physical space, right? Sure. Am I right on that? Yeah. Okay. Um, so we just, as human beings, we, we create these, uh, spaces mm-hmm. that, that provide that for us. Sure. It's a, it's a form of, um, you know, escapism. It's a, it's a soap opera. It, that's just what it is for us. So right. I, that just stood out to me. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, another thing that stood out to me was his discussion in the book and in the interview about masculine Christianity and and uh, you mentioned it just a moment ago about how sports has related to the male species mm-hmm. and how it has intensified, especially over the last few decades. Uh, but it's kind of always been that case. Uh, you know, I told uh, Dr. Balmer off of um, off microphone that uh, I can remember as a kid sitting down on a Saturday morning and watch NFL films. And, you know, they talked about the gladiators of the midway and, you know, mm-hmm. rough and tumble roar. You know, it was just, it was all really kind of militaristic type of language. And that's kind of played into this, this, um, hyper masculinity that we have seen in our society today. Um, and so, you know, I just thought it was interesting. It's great. It's a great analysis. Um, you know, I just think we need to, to keep that in check at times, uh, because life is not a football game or a baseball game or a hockey game.
2: It's not, I think we need to remember it. It is escapism and that's fine. Mm-hmm. And we need to just remember that, mm-hmm. but also do the real work that needs to be done in the world. I found that Um, The very end of the introduction, he says, um, a careful examination of the history of religion and the emergence of team sports in North America reveals all sorts of interconnections, beginning with the mythology surrounding the origins of baseball. And he talks about, actually, the mythology sort of surrounding the origins of, of the four sports that he talks about. And I just, I couldn't help but remember the conversations we've had in the past few weeks about the need and the desire that we have to create our own origin story, yeah, and how it just pervades into everything, mm-hmm. um, even in sports, we want to romanticize and we want to create this. Oh, this is how baseball was founded, or this is how football was founded, and the reality is much murkier than that. Sure. Even when he talks about football, and I mean, I it was really difficult to listen to at times when he Mm -hmm. talked about the reality of some of the things that happened especially during you know the early days of integrating um football and you know you had players who literally died because they were targeted um and just then reinforce the need for us to look honestly at our past and how like while these things are fun and enjoyable we also need to recognize. it, it, it's not tied up in a neat little bow.
1: No, it's not. In fact, you know, we, we talk a little bit about this in the interview, uh, that oftentimes sports will mirror society, and society will mirror sports. And, of course, we talk about the integration of baseball, Jackie Robinson. Uh, Dr. Balmer talks about football. Uh, also, what happened uh, with the First Nations people up in Canada and how uh, stickball turned into uh, lacrosse. Lacrosse turns into to hockey. It reminded me of something that just came to my mind, and I've shared this story with you. I
2: saw the light bulb.
1: It was (laughs) a bing. Um, My great-grandfather, who I never met, who I'm named after, Mitchell Bootnot, played for an all-Indian baseball team and was pretty darn good at it. Mm -hmm. And I always loved the game, grew up playing the game, was fortunate enough to be able to play college baseball. But after my high school career, and as you said, I was pretty good at it. I, I'm not trying to teach my own word, but uh.
2: Audience, he was very good. <laughs> uh, was. But, but exactly, he <laughs> was.
1: Um, but I remember being told by a recruiter one time that their college will not let him bring in Native American baseball players because Native Americans never stay. They always return home.
2: Well, the implication was that they were lazy, wasn't it? They were lazy
1: and they would always they would drop out of school. And I thought, are you kidding me? But that was the assessment. And now that I think about that, I think about all these players who take stances against racism, against inequality. And I applaud them because they know what it feels like. And shame on anybody who tells them to shut up and dribble right. or to, you know, get in line or just play the game. How dare you say that? They have felt the sting of oppression and marginalization all their lives. So let them speak out. But it was a great interview. We really want to encourage you to buy the book. Uh, it's in bookstores now, Passion Play. But before I, we guys, go. Wait, what?
2: I, oh. I, okay, so I had one more thing. And, okay. I mean, you took like. A really important I think turn with the conversation which is super applicable but you said sports mirrors society in many ways and mm-hmm. I am preparing for our talk today just started doing some googling and was okay. reminded I of something I wish I had thought to ask Dr. Balmer about mm-hmm. even though I feel like it's somewhat rhetorical I have an answer to this question which I'm going to choose to believe would have been Dr. Balmer's answer
1: <laughs> because you're so professorial <laughs> <So preface-orial.
2: laughs> My apologies to Dr. Balmer. <laughs> right now he's thinking, what was I thinking exactly. agreeing to this interview? Um, okay, so I grew up with an older brother who was such a sports fan. I grew up, I mean, indoctrinated into Dallas Cowboys culture. Like that that was my family. Um, so I'm I'm familiar with all of this. I can recall after Googling the controversy that was deflate gate. Yes. I don't remember the year, but I remember it was a Super Bowl and Tom Brady and there was some sort of like hullabaloo over yep. deflated balls. <laughs> yes.
1: They were quite deflated. Just slightly.
2: In any case, so I went down a rabbit hole and started reading about the science mm-hmm. of the PSI and the football. Mm-hmm. And I it reminded me of the science that goes into sports. Yeah. It's crazy. And also, even knowing from our experience with our son who played competitive soccer all the way through high school and knowing what, even just from his perspective, like when a new material of cleats came out or a a ball or whatever it was, Mm -hmm. like you rushed to get this because there had been studies and they had, they had um, looked at this fabric of the Under Armour or whatever it was. Under Armour did not sponsor us. Um, (laughs) But if they're interested. (laughs) Um, Anyways, I just... The amount, and from my brother, again, and from sports radio, like Dr. Ballmer talks about, just the, the minutiae and the, mm-hmm. the depth with which you can go into, for example, does a bat, is it a metal bat versus a wooden bat, and how sure. hitting it at a certain point causes a foul ball versus a home run. Yeah. All of these things, the science that goes into sports... Is ridiculous. The and science
1: and the mathematics, because I'm sure your brother was just like me, knew the batting averages and knew the winning percentages and how many yards somebody had run, knew all those stats. Exactly. We, could, we couldn't we could tell you so, the the algebra uh, formulas, but we could tell you those. No, statistics. No, but
2: you acknowledge the science behind yeah. all of the sports stuff, the equipment, the helmets, what right. we've done in helmets sure. to help protect against concussions. So let me ask you this. Okay. Why, as a society, if we can accept all of this science – as it relates to sports, can we not accept the same scientists who say, you know what, there is climate change, and this minute degree of increase in our temperature is going to doom us?
1: I'm hoping that there was a cricket drop right there,
2: because there's not a good answer to that
1: question. (laughs) Or a mic drop. So
2: my answer was going to be, which I'm confident Dr. Malmers is going to be, Who the hell knows? <laughs> why? Why is Probably. it that our population in general can accept that the NFL needs to invest millions of dollars into investigating mm-hmm. Deflate Gate mm-hmm. because of one or yeah. two pounds or, or
1: X-ray of- bats and all all the crazy exactly yeah, yeah yeah
2: because that's science sure and yet we refuse to take the steps necessary to combat and take care of this other thing that we're dealing with that could very literally and is literally costing lives. Yeah,
1: absolutely. All right, Missy, our audience is sitting in their car. They've got to go to work or they've got to go into church. I don't know where they are, but they're waiting with oh, bated wait, breath. We, yeah. We promised for your story. a
2: really juicy story. <laughs> <We're just laughs>
1: so, not. so tell them your rubber story okay. as you defined it.
2: Okay. So we, we lived in, in Texas, um, of course, because yay Texas, um, and our kids were in elementary school and our elementary school there in our neighborhood had a huge fall carnival every year it was very successful and um our neighbors who the husband was from
1: he was english, english and she was irish
2: she was irish lovely couple adored them um they were working one of the booths um the, the kids would play a game and then get a prize yeah, right sure. yeah. okay so mitch happened to walk by and chris our neighbor um last name redacted for <laughs> privacy purposes um he he was overheard telling the kids, you know, when they were... There was like a treasure chest with prizes, right? It's yeah. like stickers and sure. bowl gum, whatever. Yeah. And so he says, if you don't... Can you say an English accent? I can't.
1: Uh, if you dig down deep enough, no, I don't know. That doesn't sound like English. No, it doesn't. No, I'll just say it in English. <laughs> if you dig down deep enough, you'll find a rubber. You'll find rubbers <laughs> at the bottom. <laughs> and you could see the horror of these white suburban <laughs> parents yes, He he uh, alliterated that.
2: He told the kids they could find rubbers at the bottom of the treasure box. Uh,
1: a teacher or a principal quickly told our English friend that in America, they they are called erasers.
2: <laughs> erasers so there you go there you have it friends if you if you hang on with us long enough that is our that's the story is so. our great rubber story <laughs> did not uh, see that one coming into no, this podcast episode no, no. but somehow it did. somehow
1: it did so all right everybody have a good weekend and uh, we'll be back next week You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of
2: faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5.
1: And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org.